Amen. Before we get started with the word, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the message this morning. Lord, I thank you. It was supposed to be preached last week, but God, you had something else in mind. And so, Lord, I'm so thankful that even though we have plans, even though we have things that are set out, we are free in your presence. We are free to follow your leading. And so, Lord, with this message, with this word, I pray that I would follow your leading, that they would not be my thoughts, but yours, not my words, but yours. That those who hear it this morning, whether they're online or, or in person, that they would be impactful, that they would be impacted, that they would take it to their schools and to their jobs and to their families to spread the light of your word. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, two weeks ago, we started in Revelation. And for those who weren't here, uh, I want to I say uh, our YouTube page is up. It's streaming live right now. Uh, you can check through Facebook, through our website. It'll direct you there. If you miss one and you want to hear what happened a week previous or two weeks previous, you want to go check that out. So number one, uh, go back to the first slide there, Mike. Uh, we're not there yet. Number one, while things may seem hopeless at times, it's important to remember it only seems that way, right, Mike? It only seems hopeless sometimes. The reality is this, that God is in control and he's using the events in Revelation towards his ultimate return. There's going to be times where we see the events happening and we think, wow, that's pretty gruesome. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of people dying. It may seem hopeless to people, but it only seems that way. Number two, much of this series is teaching rather than preaching. Um, we're going through a book. We're going through word studies. We're going through a, a lot of different things where it's more teaching than preaching. And so what I would encourage you to take notes as well as any questions that may come up and then send them to me. Uh, ver uh, number three, in verse one of Revelation, we are given a clear description of the book. It is a revelation, say revelation, of Jesus Christ, given to show the servants of God the things that must take place soon. It is given by an angel to the Apostle John, or St. John, who is also called John the Revelator. I like that name. He is also the author, of course, of the Gospel of John, and he's one who walked alongside Jesus and served faithfully. Amen? Amen. Number four from two weeks ago, we can see and understand the signs of the end times, but we do not know the specific date. All right? Anybody that says this is the date, this is so-and-so-and-so, they don't know. They are lying to you. It's important to remember we should not drink the Kool-Aid. Amen? Come on. That's an old reference if you don't know what I'm talking about. Jim Jones, and okay, here we go. Now, some people are like, whoa, <laughs> it went real dark, real quick. Uh, number five, there are four main views on Revelation. Go to the next slide. Uh, the four main views on this, there's preterism, historicism, idealism, and futurism. You say, Pastor David, that can be confusing. Uh, simply put, it's this, preterism is that all of Revelation was fulfilled before 400 A.D., there's some that are partial preterists and some that are full. Um, oh, Hank Hanegraaff would be 
partial preterist. He's the Bible answer man guy. R.C. Sproul would be partial preterist. Uh, historicism, that it is being fulfilled throughout history. Now, there's a lot of those in the Christian camp that believed in historicism for a long time. Charles Finney was in that camp. Uh, John Wesley was in that camp. So what they believed was that we were seeing history unfold. The book of Revelation was history unfolding, and not so many believe that so much anymore. Um, idealism, there's no historical fulfillment. It's essentially however you want to interpret it. Idealism is this cosmic struggle between good and evil. It's an allegory. It's just a story to show good and evil, and that's what idealism is. There's not, uh, there's actually no legitimate uh, ministries or organizations I know of that follow idealism uh, in full, at least. And the last one is called futurism. Futurism would say that up until chapter 3, um, we get, verse uh, uh, chapter 1 through 3, we get the history of what was happening then during that time. Chapters 4 onward is in reference to the future and what is to be fulfilled. This is where we are. This is what we see as the most scripturally accurate way to view this book. So we are mainly focusing on the futurist position. There may be times where we go into preterism or historicism just for um, to go back and look and see how people may have thought about things back then. So I told you two weeks ago, I keep saying, I keep thinking last week, but two weeks ago, um, about a friend of mine whose dad, when uh, JFK had been shot, they had been waiting to see if he was going to rise from the dead because they thought he was the Antichrist. And so they thought that that was going to be the event and the, the Roman Catholic Church and all the things that go along with that. So they thought that was going to be the event that launched everything in the end of days. And, of course, we see that it didn't do that. Um, so it's interesting when you look at history, a lot of people thought Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. And I want to be very careful about something here because there is what's known as the spirit of Antichrist, and there are those who have the spirit of Antichrist. But when we talk about the Antichrist in Revelation, we're talking about a specific person or an actual person. Okay, so we, go, we got to verse 3 of chapter 1 two weeks ago, and this week we're going to finish the chapter, but we're going to start at the beginning and then continue into our study. So go to the next slide. In the beginning of Revelation, it says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. I like this part. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear, that's you guys, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Say, the time is near. The time is near. You say, Pastor David, when? Soon. How close is it? It's near. Amen? Soon and near. Oh, and now we continue in verse 4. 
John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Somebody say amen. When we're introduced, John has a, 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 an introduction for us. He's greeting the seven churches that are in Asia, and he does so by doing it with a proclamation of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you say, Pastor David, where do you see that? Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's God, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords this morning. Amen. You say, well, Pastor David, I'm, I'm a little confused about the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits who are before his throne. What does that mean? I like what David Guzik says about this. He says, the idea of the seven spirits is a quote from the Old Testament. And it means this, 11, uh, Isaiah 11.2 describes seven aspects of the Holy Spirit or seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. So when he says the seven spirits who are before his throne, he's talking about seven specific uh, characteristics or aspects of the Holy Spirit. I like what it says in Isaiah eleven twelve: the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It isn't that there are seven different spirits, Rather, the Spirit of the Lord has these characteristics, and he has them all, I like this, in fullness and perfection. Amen? Amen. We don't serve imperfection. We serve perfection. That's through 5A. Go to 5B. To him who loves us and frees us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Behold, listen to this, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen? Amen. We're going to get into some good stuff here because in this we see a glimpse of our great hope. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Listen, all nations are going to view his return. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know it's not going to be a secret. Amen? We talked about the last time, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about some certain cults who tried to say that this is the date of his return. And when that date came and passed, they said, oh, he must have come in secret. Listen, when he comes back, it will not be in secret. It will be a supernatural event, but it will not be a secret event. And so how is every eye going to see him on that day? We don't know. We know it will be supernatural. We don't know. There's no indication that everybody is living in the same location during his return. 
right? There's no indication, but it says every eye will see him. John points out that there are those, those who pierced him. Who is that? That would be the Jewish people. So those of Hebrew descent, the Jews, and all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn because of him. Now, this is where we get into some interesting things. Why would there be mourning or wailing? Think about mourning and wailing. You would think that this occasion would be a joyous occasion. You would think, behold, he is riding on the clouds. Amen, right? And so you would think this would be a joyous occasion. You'd think that this would bring a relief to the chaos, right? And that while that is true for believers, that is not true for the rest of humanity. And for the rest of humanity, we can't forget those who have rejected him their entire lives. And the agony that they will feel, the, the mourning and the wailing that they will go through when they realize their eternal mistake. We have a hope as believers. It's a great hope. But for unbelievers, it's an entirely different story. A lot of times we focus on heaven. We focus on, man, I can't wait, the good stuff. And sometimes we have to remember that there are those who will be lost for eternity. I was talking to somebody this last week. It might have been Jenny. I think it was Jenny. We were talking about people who are just, they, they struggle internally. They struggle mentally. They struggle in their view, the, the view they have of themselves. And a lot of times, rather than fighting uh, those things that are internal, they give themselves over to those things, right? So they give themselves over to those things, and they, they enter into a lifestyle of sin. We have to remember that while we as Christians have a great hope, those who have rejected Christ, who have rejected his teachings, who have, who have left the faith, who have never entered into the faith, they are facing a far worse outcome. And our hearts should break in thinking about those who have heard the gospel, have heard the good news, and still rejected him. Our hearts should cry out. I don't think I've talked about this very often. But I have nine kids in my family. There's nine. I have eight brothers and sisters. And some are serving the Lord and some aren't. And I remember when I was in college, I would hear about some of the things that my brother was doing. And it's, there's a good chance he doesn't watch this, so he's not going to know it's about him. But I remember hearing about some of the things my brother was doing. And there's five brothers, by the way, so they can guess which one is which. And just thinking, God, God, I wish you would come to know you. 
I mean praying genuinely, grieving, mourning, wailing, Lord, please make yourself known to him. How many know what I'm talking about? Brothers, sisters, family members, those who don't know the Lord. And I remember going out into the baseball fields at my college. I walked out on the fields. You know, it's, it's nighttime. The stars are shining. And you see, I, I would go there a lot of times to pray and just sit under the stars and just be under his glory and, and just be in solitude and in darkness. And I remember just falling to my knees, weeping for my brother. Lord, please, please make yourself known to him. Please grab a hold of his life. Make him, make him aware of your presence in his life. And then he did. And then another person, same situation, and another person, same situation. We, we will never run out of people to pray for. Right? We will never run out of people to pray for. I know my grandmother prayed for her son, my uncle, her entire life. Lord, with wailing and with weeping, Lord, please bring him to a knowledge of yourself. And before she died, she never got word about whether or not he accepted the Lord. And to this day, we don't even know if he's alive or where he is or if he has ever accepted the Lord. But with weeping and prayer, we call to God for them. Because one day, behold, He will come in on the clouds of glory and we will have joy and we will have peace and we will have relief. But those who are without Him will be in agony, having missed their eternal Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Listen to this. This is in Zechariah. Old Testament. They will look upon me who they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. All of this until now is a greeting. <laughs> Revelation gets into some pretty heavy stuff. All of this up until now is a greeting. It's the prologue. Now we get into some of the meat of Revelation in understanding a little bit more about John's circumstances at this time, as well as the vision that God gives him. So how many know where John was during this time? He was on Patmos, right? The island of Patmos. K-Doll, where do you think you're going? Reagan, you are too cute. You want to say something? No, okay. Love you. 
<laughs> he was on the island of Patmos. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 11 says this. Oh, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the seven churches. Those seven churches are, no, go back, are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay, so we're going to get into the seven churches. We're going to get into what, of, what all of that means. But we first see here that John is on this island called Patmos. Now, how many, just out of curiosity, have ever wondered where is Patmos? I have. How many ever bothered to look it up? Just me. <laughs> so uh, Patmos is part of a, it's a group of islands in the Aegean Sea. It's still there today. In fact, it is a beautiful, beautiful part of the world that's filled with resorts and tourism. Now, the interesting thing is this. When I was researching Patmos, some uh, commentary said that it was probably like Alcatraz, if we think about Alcatraz in relation to today. There's an island on the middle of nowhere where they held prisoners, right? Well, Patmos was really not like Alcatraz. Alcatraz is a jail and walls and chain and bars and all the things that go along with that, right? But it was a place of exile. Now, it's a beautiful area, beautiful place, but it was a place of exile. Uh, there's a historian. His name is Tertullian. He tells us that John was exiled to Patmos because of his preaching. Now, some theologians would say that he wasn't sent because of his, because of his preaching, but he went as part of a missionary journey. Now, regardless of why or how he was there, we know that while he is on this isolated island, I mean, there's people there, but whether he's there as a prisoner or a missionary, this is where God speaks to him. This is where God gives him the vision. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. While he is in prayer, he hears the voice of God. He's in prayer. That's what I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was in prayer. He was praying. He was in the spirit. He was, he was focused on the presence of God, right? And all of a sudden, he hears a trumpet, and the Lord speaks to him. He gives him clear direction what to write down and then to send the letters to these churches. What's incredible here is that John hears the voice and he turns around. And as he turns around, his eyes see what isn't there in the physical realm, but is there spiritually. If we ever had an opportunity to look into the spiritual, we would be freaked out, right? Some people, and I want to say this carefully because there are some kids here, but I also I, I want you to be very clear about what I'm saying. Uh, there are people who, in experimenting with different hallucinogens, 
and experimenting with different types of drugs have peeled the layer between the physical and the spiritual. And I've been able to see at times into the spiritual. Now, those who have, that I've encountered, that I've spoken with, because of the lifestyle that they were in and because of the way that they were doing it, what they envisioned and what they saw was terrifying. What they envisioned and what they saw was demonic, was attacking. There are others that I have known in my life that while they have been in prayer, while they have been praying, while they were in the Spirit, the Lord peeled back the curtain from their eyes to where they were able to see not just in the physical, but also in the spiritual. And they encountered visions of angels. Now, I think, awesome. <laughs> okay. I would love for that to happen. It's never happened to me, particularly. It, I, maybe there's somebody here, here who that has happened to. I've heard testimonies of people that have seen angels or been had encounters with angels. John is in this place where he's praying. He's seen in the physical, but as he turns around, he hears the trumpet, he hears the voice, and he turns around, and now he's seen in the spiritual, and this is what he sees in verse 12. Verse 12 says this. Go next slide, Mikey. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Say seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is the first part of the rich imagery we're going to encounter in Revelation. He sees these seven lampstands, and while he doesn't know what they mean yet, at this point, it likely matters very little, right? Because in the center of the lampstands, there is a man, and whatever Jesus looked like on earth is nothing compared to what he looked like in glory. Listen, we see that he's wearing a white robe. We see that he's wearing a gold sash around his chest. And then, and then John sees this, verse 14. Go to the next slide, Mikey. It says this, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. The, John, the description that John gives us here is an incredible description. Now, last week, during our, our time of rest, uh, I showed you a picture. Go to the next slide. I showed you a picture of what, this is an artist's, uh, rendering of this scene. 
So we see the seven lampstands. We see the man with the white hair and the gold sash, and he's holding seven stars in his hands, right? And honestly, this is a pretty impressive depiction of what John would have seen. It's impressive. I mean, it's, it's not a bad look. But even this, listen, this pales in comparison, right? How many ever uh, seen, oh, let's see, let's, let's, let's make a good analogy here. How many ever watched uh, old Nick at Night TV shows? No? Never watched I Love Lucy and, and Mary Tyler Moore and, and Susie's, <laughs> Susie's shaking her head. I didn't watch Nick at Night. I watched it live. Uh, on the day it aired, that was new. Uh, think about the TVs back then. Think about the picture quality. Mikey, you know what I'm talking about? My wife, as much as I love her, has no appreciation for picture quality. None at all. Because there's a difference between watching a football game on a little tiny screen a tube, a tube style box, right? And watching it on full high definition 4K coming at you, right? Come on. There's a difference. So you think about the difference between an artist's rendering of a glimpse of maybe what John saw. Not even a glimpse. Uh, uh, uh. Compare it to the real thing. Compare it to ultra-high-definition 8K, whatever sound, speakers blasting. But then he steps out of the television, right? In person. The glory of God. John sees the glory of God. The seven lampstands, the man there, he hears the voice, he turns, and that's who he sees. John can describe it for us, but I want to ask you, can you imagine it? I like what Spurgeon says here. He says, what do you see in Christ's right hand? They are seven stars. Yet how insignificant they appear when you get the sight of his face. How insignificant do they appear when you get the sight of his face? They are stars, or there are seven of them. But who can see seven stars or for that matter, 70,000 stars when the sun shines in all his strength. How sweet it is when the Lord himself is so present in a congregation that the preacher, whoever he may be, is forgotten altogether. How sweet it is, I pray to you, dear friends, when you go to a place of worship, Always try to see the Lord's face rather than the stars in his hands. And because, listen, when you look at the sun, you will forget the stars. Amen? Amen. Man, I want to preach on this for just a second. Is that okay? Can I preach on something for just a second? You give me permission? It's 11 eh, something. I can't really see. 1140. You're going to have plenty of time to get lunch. I spoke with a friend not too long ago. Not too long ago, I spoke with a friend who had, he had been with a church for several years, and then he had left the church he had been at and was searching about where to go next. And 
and I was asking him what he was looking for in his next church. So you're going to the next church, what are you, what are you looking for? And his answer to me was devastating, but it wasn't surprising. He had narrowed it down, him and his wife had narrowed it down to two churches where one had great biblical preaching, but the other one was where his kids would have more fun. <laughs> I wanted to reach through the phone and just strangle him. I wanted to reach through the phone and grab his neck. I wanted to reach through the phone and slap him a few times. You know what I'm saying? What are you thinking? What is the mind process here? Regardless of the speaker, regardless of the programs, you should be in a church where Jesus is lifted high. Amen? Regardless of whether or not your kids have, listen, I want our kids to have fun, and eventually after COVID, they will have more fun. But listen, regardless of whether or not they're having fun, is the presence of God alive and real in that church? And if not, why are you there? Far too many churches are more concerned with their programs than his presence. And in case you weren't aware, that is a problem. Listen, when John encounters the presence of God and the glory of Jesus, his legs give out. His presence of God, man, he couldn't even stand before the glory. Verse 17. Go to the next slide, Mike. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I, like, I love this. Man, this is one of the greatest things. How many ever encountered or understand what it means when I say slain in the spirit? If you were raised in Pentecostal church, if, you, if, if anything like that, you know that what it means is that people are being prayed for, and a lot of times when they're being prayed for, sometimes they will fall over or fall backward. And that while they're down on the ground, that God is doing something in them that's so tremendous that they couldn't take it standing up. Okay, that's what being truly slain in the Spirit means. We've seen for years in the Pentecostal church and the charismatic movement where a lot of times people fall down because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Or they fall down because it's an emotional reaction to what's going on. Truly being slain in the Spirit is when God is doing something so incredible in your life that you can't contain it standing up. John here is slain in the spirit. He falls dead, falls at his feet as though dead. And here's what happens. But he, Jesus, lays his right hand upon him. And he utters these incredible words. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Somebody say amen. And I have the keys of death in Hades, or I have the keys of death in hell. I love what we see because John is overwhelmed. He falls at his feet. Jesus leans over and lays his hand on him. It's a reassurance. It's a touch of compassion and comfort. Fear not, John. Fear not. I love that. I love that in God's, 
incredible, passionate, personal relationship with us. He leans over and touches our shoulder and says, fear not. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Do you remember who you serve this morning? Come on. We have to remember that he holds the keys to death and Hades. We have to remember that he is the first and he is the last. And behold, he is alive forevermore. Amen? Come on. I love that. Even as John is at his feet, Jesus gives him a second command. He says, all right, John, you're down there, but you got to write this down. Gives us a second command. He says this, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and important, those that are to, that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the gold, seven golden lampstands. Remember, I talked about the imagery, right? Here, Jesus tells him specifically right away, what that imagery is, what it means. In my right hand, uh, you saw the seven stars in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. As we get deeper into Revelation, we're going to see more pictures like this and not always have an answer as to what it means. Some of it is interpretive, some of it is figurative, and some of it is literal. Now, it's interesting when you look at what you think may be figurative and wonder, is this literal? Because then it gets into some really crazy stuff. And we're not going to get into all of that right now, but here we have an answer. Jesus is holding seven stars, and it means angel. Now, it's interesting because it's a reference to who is assigned or who is over that church. Some commentaries would say that it was referring to the leadership or the pastors of those churches. We then see that each lampstand is a representation of that church, right? So you have seven churches, seven angels, and you have the face of Jesus shining in all its glory. Next week, we're going to jump into the seven churches that Jesus spoke of. Stand with me this morning, will you? Jenny isn't here this morning. She's not going to play. Um, she had told me she wasn't feeling very well. And so I just I released her to head home. So if you would, be in prayer for Jenny this morning. Be in prayer for Tina this morning. Um, be in prayer for Sue this morning. She's been, Don was telling me she's going through some tough times with her, her back. Um, we pray for those who are at home watching. We, we miss you. We love you. We can't wait to see you back here. Um, we pray for Steve as he recovers from sh shoulder surgery. Uh, Doreen as she recovers still from her mouth surgery stuff that happened. Um, oh, that's the worst dream. <laughs> it's, 
It can be the worst. So if you have a need this morning, you just say, Pastor David, I just I have a need. Would you would would you include me in that prayer? Will you raise your hand? All right, see your hands. This morning, next week, we're going to jump into the seven churches. But this morning, I want us to focus not on the seven stars, but on his face. Not on the seven lampstands, and they're, they're glorious. We're going to get into some really interesting stuff about those churches. But on his face. You see, far too many times we get distracted by what's around. And we miss out on who's there. Far too many times we're looking for the spectacular. We're looking for the distraction. And God is right there in the midst saying, just focus on me. So Lord, we come this morning and put our focus on you. We understand that there are those who are struggling with sickness. We understand that there are those who are struggling right now in their bodies, and we pray healing upon them in your name. But we know that that is a byproduct of your glory. We don't look at the seven stars. We don't look at the lampstands. We look at your face this morning. Lord, I pray that our mind and our eyes would be focused on you in everything we do in our jobs, with our families, with our kids, that we would keep in mind you who are first and last. You who is firstborn of the dead. You whose face shines in the fullness of the sun. We thank you and praise you for allowing us for gracing us with your presence this morning. We pray that it would continue to, continue to move in and through our lives. As we, as we encounter and get deeper into Revelation, Lord, speak to us clearly. That there wouldn't be an anxiety or a worry, but we would have hope, we would have courage, we would have faith. Lord, I pray over those who are here this morning. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would keep them. Lord, I pray that you would cause your face to shine down upon them. And Lord, I pray that you would give them rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you. So excited to see you guys today. It's an awesome day. Next week is going to this is gonna be a beautiful week too, so you guys enjoy it. Wednesday night, we're going to continue in our Wednesday night classes. They start at 6.30. And youth group is tonight at 6. And other than that, we will see you next week. God bless you guys.